So we've seen over the last several weeks that faith and finances are deeply intertwined with one another. Our use of our money is one of the best thermometers we have of our spiritual lives. We see this throughout Scripture. But not only is your use of your money a thermometer, a measuring device of your spiritual life, it's also a thermostat. It is a way to adjust your spiritual life. You can, you can manipulate your spiritual life through your wallet. The way you handle your money has a shaping effect upon you spiritually. Now, in the passage of Scripture that Jesse read to us, Exodus 35 and 36, this is one of our greatest family stories. I mean, really, I, I loved hearing this. Do you know that what just happened, that's like when my family gets together for Christmas and we tell the stories? That's what just happened. As a family, we've just gathered around and we've heard one of our stories, one of our great-great-great-grandparents' stories, what they went through. And in this story, the people of Israel, our forebearers, they are building the tabernacle. And to do this, they're giving from their own assets. Now, there's two things that stand out on a purely literary level in those two chapters. The author of those two chapters is using various literary devices in order to make an ideological point, in order to make an agenda, in order to express his theology. And the two things that stand out are this. Number one, the giving of the people is enormous. And there's lots of techniques used in this fine piece of literature to establish that. They give so much, in fact, the row behind me started chuckling when it gets to the point where Moses has to tell the people, stop, nobody is allowed to give anymore, right? There's so much. And then the second thing that stands out in this story And the author of the story makes this point over and over and over again. That their giving was voluntary. It comes up in verse 5. Whoever is of a generous heart. This is Exodus 35 verse 5. Verse 21. Everyone whose heart heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. In verse 22. Willing heart. In verse 26. All the women whose hearts stirred them. In chapter 36, verse 2, everyone whose heart stirred them. And we use this kind of language today. We talk about give as you're led, give as you feel led. Phrases like this, they come up throughout these two chapters. Now, the point of these two things is this. The giving was extravagant and it was strictly voluntary. Now, in the Bible, there is a name for this type of offering. And it comes up in chapter 35, verse 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering. Now that phrase, that's a technical term. It's, It's the official name of this type of offering. They had other types of offerings. But this type of offering was called a free will offering because it was... Freely, according to the will of each person. Chapter 36, verse 3 comes up again. They received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. 
Now, there's another passage of Scripture. Numbers chapter 15, verse 2. It says, when you come into the land that you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from the herd or from the flock a food offering, that was one type of offering, or a burnt offering, that was a separate type, or a sacrifice, again a third, to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering at your appointed feast to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, throughout the Old Testament, we see that there were different types of offerings that people were asked to give. The free will offering, again, was strictly voluntary. Now, last week, we looked at a different way that the people brought money to God, and that was called the tithe. And the tithe was 10% off the top of whatever resources came into a person's hand. It was not optional, so it wasn't a gift, right? When you have to do it, it's not a gift, right? Our children don't give to us the gift of obedience, right? I don't write a check to my mortgage company as a gift, right? I'm repaying a debt. And the tithe in the Old Testament is indeed a debt. It's not optional. But the free will offering, this was a gift. This was truly a gift. And it was far and above the 10%. You can look at it this way. When it comes to the tithe, the people of God... Let me back up. When it comes to the tithe, God desired his people to do it joyfully. But he didn't require them to do it joyfully. They just had to do it. The free will offering, on the other hand, involved the joy of a heart that had been touched by God's grace. So the tithe was a demonstration of obedience. And the free will offering was a demonstration of love and joy and generous thankfulness and worship. So you could say that the Israelites tithed because God told them to. But they gave above and beyond the tithe in these voluntary offerings because they wanted to. Now when we turn to the New Testament, how does this play out? Well, look with me at this passage that Sarah read to us. 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, chapter 8 and 9. In the New Testament, we see that this whole kind of logic of giving is accepted by God's people. The notion of a tithe that is a debt that you repay, that you don't really have a choice about. And the notion of something above that and beyond that, in in excess of that, that is entirely... Of your own choice. We looked at last week how the tithe comes into the New Testament. And actually throughout the New Testament they treat it the same way they treated it in the Old Testament. As a debt to be repaid to God. That God owned everything and he claimed the first 10% to be spent in a certain way. But now this week I want to show you how the free will offering moves into the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9... You've got to be struck. It's the same language almost. When it's describing this offering being taken in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as a language that that Moses is using in Exodus to describe the offering being given there. Look in chapter 9 verse 7. Each one must give as he made up in his own mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then back in chapter 8 verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. 
Look, Paul was steeped in the Old Testament. So when he's writing a letter about this new situation, all of his language is coming out of those stories. They gave of their own free will, begging as earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I've got to believe, as Paul is looking at what the Macedonians are doing, he's saying, we've seen this before. We've seen people just giving and giving and giving and begging for the chance to give. Because the whole narrative of Paul's mind, his imagination was not programmed by his secular culture. It was programmed by the Old Testament. That's what it means to be people of the book. It means that your, your mind is so filled with scripture that that forms the DNA of your thought processes. That that fuels your imagination. This description of God's people in Corinth in 56 AD, it is almost exactly the same as the description 1,500 years prior. Not in Corinth, but in a wilderness wandering. Where here they are, once again, giving in this generous and sacrificial and excessive way above and beyond their tithes. Now, there are differences. The collection that we're reading about in 2 Corinthians is not for the building of a tabernacle. In fact, it has nothing to do with the people who are giving this. In Exodus, they were building something they were going to get to participate and enjoy. But in 2 Corinthians, it's about a group of Christians who live far away in a world where you didn't travel much and you would probably never go see them and they would never repay it back and you would get no direct benefit from it. Now, we're not entirely sure why this collection was required. We know from Romans, because Paul touches on it in almost all of his letters. In all of his churches, he's collecting this money. It's called, in fact, the collection. And he's collecting it for Christians in Jerusalem who've fallen on really tough times. Now, we don't know exactly what's caused this. It seems likely that what has occurred is that there's been an economically depressed situation in Jerusalem with with the consequence that the Christians there are suffering deeply. Now, this is kind of a monetary system issue. We have some historical evidence that there were various natural calamities that had affected crops, that had caused a tremendous failure, and this really hurts an agrarian society. Things like drought and famine and pestilence. And when you add into all of this that Rome had no official safety net. If you, fell, if, if you fell on rough times, there was no governmental assistance. So in response to this, Paul goes around to all his churches saying, Hey, we've got Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and they need our help. Now last week when I was preaching about the tithe, we saw, we saw a passage in the Gospels and a passage in 1 Corinthians where the tithe is, I believe, affirmed for Christians today. But this passage this morning doesn't use any of that language that we saw in the gospel passage or we saw in 1 Corinthians. It uses instead this other language, the language of the free will offering. Now, some people read this passage in Corinthians and they apply it to the tithe. And they say that as New Testament Christians... We're not bound to tithe. We should give freely whatever we're in the mood to give. Well, I think that's true. We should give freely whatever we're in the mood to give. But I think the logic is played out the same. In the Old Testament, tithe 10%. In the New Testament, there's several passages I pointed out last week where it comes over. 
In the Old Testament, they had free will offerings. And this passage is that same language. It's not talking about the tithe. It's talking about this. So Paul is not saying that you should only tithe what you feel in the mood to tithe. What he's saying here is, look, guys, in Corinth, above and beyond your regular giving, there is a special need going on. And then he starts using language that comes from their stories and their family heritage in order to trigger their memories, in order to help them live up to their heritage. And then they do. He's not saying that a a person shouldn't give under compulsion when it comes to the normal week-to-week operations and ministries of the church. He's talking about this one time, this special offering. He's arguing, he's begging for the Christians under his care to give to the need of these that they'll never meet and that will never be able to repay them. Now, there are many other examples in the New Testament of this type of extravagant giving, right? I could have, those of you who read the Bible, you know that I could have picked a number of passages from Acts where the people bring all of their stuff and put it at the apostles' feet and there's no need, at the apostles' feet and there's no needy person in the church. What I want us to see is that our passage from Exodus and our passage from 2 Corinthians, that what we're seeing is a consistent characteristic of the people of God across the centuries and in diverse cultures. This is a universal characteristic of God's people. This generous outflowing of resources. And it, has, it didn't stop in the New Testament. If we fast forward the tape, 1,700 years, take John Wesley, for example. He was the Anglican priest in the 18th century who started the Methodist church. The historical record indicates that in 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so that he would have more money To give to the poor. One year, his income was 30 pounds. That's not pounds of gold. That's the British way of measuring money. And his living expenses that year were 28 pounds. So he gave to the poor two pounds. The next year, his income doubled. From 30 to 60 pounds. But he still lived on 28 pounds. And he gave away... 32 pounds. In the third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. And again, he lived on 28 pounds. And he gave away 62 pounds. In the fourth year, he made 120 pounds. And he lived on 28 pounds. And he gave away 92 to the poor. Now, Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe. They should give away all extra income once their family and their creditors were taken care of. See, Wesley believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase and his standard of living should stay consistent. Even when his income rose toward the end of his life through royalties into thousands of pounds a year, he lived simply. He would quickly give away, the, give away all the extra. At one point, the British government audited him 
because he claimed in his tax records only to have two kind of settings of silver, like two silver spoons, not settings. Um, And he wrote back and said, it's really all I've got. Everything else is accounted for and given away. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, but he lived off of 30 pounds, and he gave away the rest. Now, at that point, his annual income was the equivalent of $160,000, and he lived on what today would be 20000 Now, what I'm trying to point out is, the, is a, a pattern in the Old Testament among Israelites and the New Testament among Gentiles um, across centuries and across cultures where God's people have a consistent way of looking at money. What we see in Wesley is someone who is saying, I will put a control on my spending myself and I will go beyond the tithe for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And if you've lived in the Christian church very long, you know that we could produce examples ad nauseum. Now, I believe God is leading our church to be a small church, deeply rooted in downtown Harrisonburg. And we're going to be small. We don't know how small. Maybe something in the 200, 250 range, the Lord willing. And we're going to plant other small churches Three small churches in D.C. got together and planted us. And we're going to plant churches that plant churches, churches that are deeply rooted in their place, neighborhood churches. And instead of trying to reach people in other places, we're going to plant churches in other places to reach people. We, we want to reach just as many people as the big churches do. We just want to do it through small churches instead of becoming a giant regional thing. Now, to do this, money is part of the equation. For example, our current building is inadequate. For us to increase our space, the best option we've found is that we're going to have to quadruple our rent to double our space. Our rent right now is $900 a month. We're getting a great deal. (laughs) We're going to have to get a normal deal, it looks like. Twice we've had more people in worship than chairs we own. In the last couple of months. Not to mention the fact that our lease only gives us a 60-day window. The plan is for Urban Exchange, they own this building, to make this into a parking lot. And we've got a 60-day leash before they can invite us to um, find a new home. Then there's the fact that to be a church that plants other churches, we need to bring in other vocational ministers to be formed for, with healthy pastoral practices and habits and skills and dispositions, the kinds of things that are necessary for spiritual leadership in the church. Now, look, we are living at the end of a dying gasp of a way of forming ministers, and it's awful. In the Western culture, there's been this two centuries-long trend that assumes a minister is prepared when he leaves seminary. This is a terrible assumption. And it's wreaking havoc across our land. In the lives of people and churches. Now as a church, we are investing in the wider work of God by developing with some other churches a a, a model where we supplement a young minister's seminary training with a focused apprenticeship 
in a community of support and practical education. Here at Incarnation and in our network of churches, ministers will be mentored. This is, this, Luke is going through this right now, a pastoral resident, just like a medical resident, right? You've gone through medical school, now you have to go through this moment of formation. And this takes money. Now, we're blessed with Luke because Luke came to us um, without us having money. We don't have the money to support Luke and Mary Grace. So they committed to raising over 80% of their income on their own. So we pay Luke less than 20% of his salary. And the reason, why is he doing this? Why is he coming here and working full-time for our church and working very hard to raise his support? Why? Because of the vision of planting small churches that take the gospel and the kingdom and liturgy and community and all the things that we embody. Luke graduated seminary at a great seminary. He could have gone and gotten a free ride at another church, but he came to a church where he not only has to work, but he has to work to pay himself. Now, so we're, I mean, we're finding creative ways to live into our vision without money is what I'm kind of getting at. But to plan other churches, we're going to not only need to support other ministers. Luke's with us for 18 months. We're going to need to bring in other ministers. And why? To send them out to plant other churches. And when we plant those other churches, we're going to need to do for them what our parent church did for us. We need to give them money. It's it's not fair to plant a church on a wing and a prayer. And likely our church is going to continue to... We use outside support now. Our budget's $190,000. We guess that we're going to need to raise about 70000 of that in outside support this year. We're, we're still not big enough to pay our own way. If any of you have had children get married and move off, you know that's a stage at the beginning, right? <laughs> and we're, we, 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 th- we assume we're going to need outside support for another year or so. And when we plant churches... We want to be able to support them. Now, one of the amazing things that God is doing here at Incarnation is the relationships He's giving us with those outside of our body. I think of Janina in Bolivia, right? God gave us that relationship through a serendipitous conversation in a bowl of good one day, and now Janina's back in Bolivia. I think of Alice in Kenya. And the girls' school, right? In an in a amazing way, Alice shows up at a worship service, you know? I mean, we know, the, we know the human level relationships that got her there, but it's amazing, right? I, I think of Muay Guy and Valerie that are on the cusp of moving to Nigeria for the kingdom of God. And of Ken and Emily Wittig, who are related to our church, and they're serving the poor and the homeless in this community through a work recovery program called Our Community Farm. And I think of Hearts which is a tremendous response to need in our community. Dennis and Leah. Dennis is working on his master's degree at UVA or the other one. Oh, that one. No, I'm joking. (laughs) At Virginia Tech in in land resource management. They're Maasai from Kenya, and they're going to be eventually. And and Leah is the operations director for Shenandoah Growers. Right? Is that the right name? Shenandoah. Did I get it right? And they're going to be going back to Kenya. And they're dealing with a people group who's in transition from being um, nomads to having to grapple with a government that's trying to lock them down in unhealthy ways. And we're going to need, we've got that. And Mike Trainum's shell books and how that takes us all around the world. And Ernie and Katrina's work in Guatemala. And the list goes on and on. And now look, here's what I'm saying. All of these relationships could be given to a, a missions committee 
But what I'm saying is before they are missions, they are relationships that we have a responsibility to steward. Our responsibility is the relationship with Janina that we must steward that has financial implications at times, I hope. And the relationship with Alice that might have financial implications. We need this year to start a missions team that's comprised of a diversity of cultures who will lead our church to be faithful stewards of the relationships that God in his sovereignty is bringing into our church. And we need to send resources to these people. I'm not saying we're going to be unwise about it. No, Katrina and Ernie will be a part of that team, I'm sure. And they've got very aggressive decisions, <laughs> opinions about um, how missions work. But the fact that it's complicated does not ever mean money's not a part of the equation. And then there's the issue of those in our community who, have, who are dealing with issues of poverty that we will help as a church. Deuteronomy 15.1 tells us, what we know to be true, there will never be, cease to be the poor in the land. But it says in the same chapter that we must remove poverty from the land. We live in that tension. Do you know that according to some of the most conservative estimates, the number of people who live on less than $1 per day, this is called absolute poverty or extreme poverty, the number of people living in our world today on less than $1 a day is 1.2 billion people. And they have stunted bodies and damaged brains as a result of inadequate food. And the fact that we don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. The Corinthians never saw the Jerusalem Christians. When you raise the level of measurement to $2 per day, this is called significant poverty, then get ready. It covers half of the world's population. One half. Around 3.4 billion people, give or take. Of the world's 2.2 billion children, 1 billion live on less than $2 a day. 1 billion live at the level of income called significant poverty. The most conservative estimate is that 25,000 people die every day due to starvation. That's one person every three and a half seconds. In other words, since we began our worship service, around 350 people have died of starvation. And by the time we end the service, something like 1,500. Hunger and starvation stalk the land. Now, we all know the reasons for poverty are complex. I'm not trying to, you know, play on your emotions in order to override that. But at the risk of oversimplifying, let me boil down an enormous amount of scripture and scientific, sociological, economic, political analysis into three basic categories of poverty. Three general causes of poverty in our world today. Number one is natural disasters. Number two is laziness. And number three... It's those who are made poor by the actions of others, whether directly or indirectly. And the Bible lists the major ones, exorbitantly high interest rates, greedy business, corrupt legal systems, the failure of government to provide a wise and sufficient form of welfare, and the exploitation of illegal immigrants is one of the five major causes of poverty in the Bible. Now, our next Cafe Veritas is going to be on illegal immigrants in Harrisonburg. Now, at the end of the day, God does not have a laissez-faire policy when it comes to poverty. Scripture is clear. The church 
Every church must face up to the poor. God gave Israel strong and explicit orders to eliminate poverty from her land. Jesus identified himself as the embodiment of God's work in Israel. The early church understood herself as the body of Christ, the true Israel. And this is the primary reason that incarnation, we must commit ourselves to the hard and incredibly complex work of a merciful and just and effective response to poverty. It must be at the heart of our church. And as we do this, we are implementing the achievement of Jesus and his resurrection. We are anticipating the renewal of all things. The church was brought into being by Jesus and energized by his Holy Spirit. And we are called to be agents of transformation for the Father. We are to bring the transformative news and work of God's kingdom to the whole of creation. We belong to Jesus and we're called to put things right. And so God sends us out into the world to put things right, to preach the gospel, teaching and healing and working for the poor and the needy. We are to care for and embrace those in need as if they are our own kin. This requires very wise and very merciful actions. So all of these things. Our need for buildings and formation of ministers and planting churches and missions and helping those in need, both in our church and outside our churches. All of these are reasons that I beg you to be a generous and sacrificial giver. And to do this for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, the real issue is lifestyle. We need to recover a sense of enough. A sense of abundance can only exist when we have a sense of enough. I gave this quote last week. Abundance is having few desires. It's not in having many things. To be the kind of church God is calling us to be, for some of us, our lifestyle is going to have to change. Not for all of us. We've got to see that what we do with every cent says something about our view of God and what he means to us and what our values are in this age and what we think our few years on earth should be spent for. Developing a way of life that is content with enough and that demonstrates this this contentment by a conscious acceptance of a level of consumption That stops increasing. That says enough. My appeal is that some of us would alter our lifestyle. Now look, this is not a matter of urging you to make painful financial choices. There's a place for that. Please make painful financial choices. But that's... Uh, But what I'm saying is that for some of us, what we need is to realize that our drive for more, more, more is damaging our well-being. So I'm not inviting you to sacrifice for others. I'm inviting you to life. I'm inviting you not to sacrifice, but to stop sacrificing. 
the shalom of your own life. We directly damage our own well-being by driving every year to increase and escalate our consumption. What we need is another vision of life. Another vision of what it means to have the good life. A vision in which the word enough plays a positive role. We use it negatively. That's enough. But we need to be able to say, that's enough. That's what Wesley was doing. What what we need is this vision of life. Living life in a way that creates new possibilities for neighborliness. New possibilities opportunities to demonstrate care for our surroundings. New opportunities where we actually have more time available in our harried lives. This vision of enough will help not only liberate the poor, it will liberate the rich. Human well-being requires first and foremost a lifestyle of restraint and not luxury. Church of the Incarnation. Let's live up to our family heritage. To the heritage we saw in Exodus and in 2 Corinthians and in 18th century England. And many people in our church are embodying in ways already today. Let's live up to our heritage. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes?